following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. Y'all just saying maybe some words that you didn't know. And you saying, let thy goodness, hear it again, let thy goodness like a fetter. Everybody know what a fetter is? It's a, it's a chain. It's like you're chained. So let God's goodness like a chain bind my wandering heart to thee. Isn't that great words? And I'm hoping that that's true this morning, that his goodness is driving you, that, that it's chained you to Him. It drives you back to Him. I don't know about you, but I'm so thankful for the community groups. I was just at one last night, and they're just sweet, sweet. Oh, there, they're cheering for themselves there. That's beautiful. That's awesome. They're just sweet communities of people, just wonderful to be a part of, and I hope that you continue to take care, for, uh, take care of each other. I'm so thankful for the prayers that you guys pray for one another. Uh, we have a lot of people right now, a lot of our congregation are sick, just generally, and some have the vid, you know, and so let's all right now just say hello to everybody at home. Ready, everybody? Hi, everybody. There you go. They're, they're, they're at home. They're watching today uh, in their little jammies, you know, that kind of thing. Aren't you thankful for the gym and that we're not out in the stadium right now? Yeah. Yeah. So make sure that if you got the weekly update, you know that we just really want you to make sure you're working hard to take care of our relationship here and that you're loving the people that actually are part of the school. That's really important. And um, also thankful for the guys that are getting ready to be on property, the parking team and other groups are kind of getting us ready. They're going to be kind of practicing with our parking lot the way that we'll have to deal with our new parking lot. And so just, you know, don't, don't be freaking out and shocked. Just kind of go with it, whatever they're doing. They're, they may guide you to park over in, uh, you know, in Temecula. I don't know how it's going to work out. Anyway, but um, one of the best things that we could do is make sure that as we open up God's Word that we're always, our hearts are ready. You know, that we want to hear what our sovereign God has to say in His Word. If you're new with us, our goal every morning, uh, every Sunday Obviously, when we gather, is to offer ourselves in worship as a living sacrifice. We're giving ourselves to Christ, not just our attendance or our minds, but our very lives we're offering. And we want to hear His Word as written and respond to that. So would you just for a moment bow your head, close your eyes, and prepare your own heart just in silent prayer and allow me to kind of pray then and close our time in prayer and open up God's Word. Heavenly Father, we would pray that you would work in our lives today, and uh, Father, not just that this be another Sunday, but, or just another study of uh, the book of James, but it would be a Sunday where we say, hey, Lord, how can I be more of what you want, us, want me to be? Um, how can I begin to behave in a way that would bring you glory? How can I uh, be a person who is depending on you for everything? Uh, Father, how can you change me in such a way that I could speak maybe more for your glory and less for myself? 
in all these things, we want you to work and change us and make us more like your son. And for maybe a few, that you would actually draw us to you. And so we'll give you the glory for what you'll do today. And we praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. I'm that guy. Uh, don't ever tell me about your big surprise party. Some of you know me, and you know exactly what I'm saying. I don't keep secrets well. I don't. Uh, I, I will let the cat out of the bag. I will somehow, inadvertently, tell the surprisee what's happening. Okay, they're going to find out, and all your work at keeping a secret is going to be ruined. Now, I don't do it to be mean. Uh, I really don't. I do it because I was just designed by God to be open to be direct. I, I don't keep secrets. I don't play politics. I don't enjoy surface-level polite talk. I don't like religiosity. I never like hiding the truth. And, and those are strengths of mine, but they're also massive weaknesses. Really, they really are. Uh, I, that means I'm the guy who comes off blunt. Those of you who know me know that Chris is very blunt. Uh, confrontive. I'll always address the elephant in the room. If there's an issue, I'm going to talk about it. I'm just going to bring it up. I'm, I'm not uncomfortable with that. The, the glaring problem, the thing that most people dance around, I'm not going to dance around it. I'm not. I'm the person who's going to tell you everything, and I'm also the person who's going to address anything. Uh, that's just the way I'm put together. I love this church family because of our commitment to the Word and because of your commitment to discipleship and investment in each other's lives. There's a, a deeper level of openness and transparency and people who live without guile that we just enjoy one another. We understand who we are in Christ and it really makes our church family very unique and a very special place in His grace and by His grace, a true family, a true family. Well, that doesn't mean, though, that even though we enjoy that, that we don't have communicative issues, right? Uh, that you're built a certain way that kind of produces a certain kind of response, and there are things that are weaknesses in your life that tend to come out in the way that you would speak or the way that you would have conversation. You may be quiet and reserved and, and really need only one friend, you may be loud and bombastic and need a hundred friends, okay? You could be that person in the morning, uh, you just say, good morning, Lord, and you're chipper and everything's great and you don't even need coffee to say that. And there's a whole bunch of you here that every morning you get up and it's, good Lord, it's morning, okay? Oh no, and uh, I got to start another day. But regardless of how you're made, we all have issues Things that we need to work on when it comes to the way that we talk, the way that we speak, your speech, your verbal interactions, what you say, and how you say it, and when you say it, are all really addressed in the Scripture. Some of you need to talk more. Most of us need to talk less. <laughs> Some need to be way more positive than you are. Some need to be a little more discerning about what they say. Others need to be more encouraging. Others need to, in fact, most of us need to listen more. And still others need to stop speaking certain ways. We need to cultivate, you know, certain habits and we need to stop certain habits, even in our relationships with our spouse and our children and our parents. Christ died for our sin, and that includes our speech, but some Christians will think nothing of uttering angry words or unnecessary words or passing on rumors or gossip or slander or half-truths or innuendo or presumption is a big one. 
for Christians and a host of other evil speech. And even though the Lord suffered and died for our sins, there'll be some Christians who will flippantly sin with their mouths making insinuations. Their utter swear words, you know, maybe not at church, but at home or at work. Boasting about accomplishments. They'll even lie, criticize, speak contentiously, and continually complain. I know that none of you struggle with that. All the while, we ignore the fact that our speech is actually on trial. Our speech is on trial by the God who suffered and died for our sins, the very judge of the universe. Our everyday talk is judged by Christ every day. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 36, take a look at it in your outline, every careless word that men shall speak, they shall render account for it in the day of judgment, for by your words you shall be justified, and by your words you shall be condemned. Believers forget that two out of the ten commandments are actually directed at the tongue. And there are hundreds of proverbs in that incredible book of wisdom that address unrighteous talk, that we need to be careful about what we say, what we allow out of our mouths. Jesus even said very strongly, Luke chapter 12, verse 3, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the inner rooms shall be proclaimed in the housetops and upon the housetops. Even though you may think nothing of sinning with your words, the Bible says your speech is actually an accurate thermometer of your soul. An actual thermometer of your soul. You know, just like the temperature right now would record, and as the guys are setting up this morning, it was below freezing, okay? It went from 34 earlier this morning down to freezing as they're setting up. And, you know, they're still falling out right now. Uh, but the temperature gave an accurate reading, correct, of what was going on. The thermometer does. Well, interesting enough, your words is an accurate thermometer of your heart, of your heart. The Bible proclaims that very clearly. It's going to give you an accurate reading of what you're really like, what your true spiritual condition is. Jesus, again, our Lord, says these profound words in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34. He says, the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Did you get that? The tongue is the messenger that carries the words from the heart. The real problem is not your tongue. The real problem is your heart. Your inner person. The tongue is the bucket that dips into the well of the heart that shows everyone what kind of water exists within. Is it sweet or is it sour? Is it palatable or is it poison? That means if you really want to know how you're doing spiritually whether your heart is really right before the Lord or not, don't trust in church attendance and don't trust in praying before meals or loyalty to the Bible or sporadic prayer or giving, you know, finances, etc. and giving. All really good things, but you can do those without your heart being in Christ or intimate with Christ. What you need to do, according to the Bible, according to James, according to Christ, is you need to examine your speech. Check out the last time you had an argument with your spouse and find out what your heart is really like. Check out the last time your parents or your children made you angry and what came out of your mouth tells you about what's going on in your spiritual life. 
Now, those are not my words. Those are the words of the Scripture, and those are the words that James is going to highlight for us this morning. Understand, if you want to see inside your soul, examine your response to the last juicy rumor or tantalizing gossip or critical statement or complaint. What does your talk with friends, what does your talk as you're hanging out on campus students, what does your talk as we're talking up on the patio or family time or even your response to rude strangers tell you about your heart? MacArthur gives this great quote. I loved it. So untypical of him. It said this, the tongue is you in a unique way. The tongue is a tattletale that tells on your heart and discloses the real person, end quote. Every one of you battles with your talk. Can I hear an amen to that? It's true. Your speech and my speech is a challenge. It is one of the greatest challenges that Christians will face. No question. And because of that, one of the clearest indicators of your heart, James now brings up the tongue again. This time in chapter 3, we made it to chapter 3, and he wants to challenge us, to equip us, and to cause us to examine our hearts through our speech. In other words, the, the tongue is such a great concern to James, I don't know if you knew this, but the tongue is mentioned in every single chapter of this book. Every single chapter has some exhortation towards your tongue. You you got to know that it's on James' mind. He really wants you to deal with this, and God wants you to deal with this. So we're in James chapter 3, if you're not there already. If you're new with this, we're just working our way through the epistle of James. And our goal is not to say, what's the preacher think? We don't care what the preacher thinks. We only care what God thinks. So we're drawing out the truth of what God meant by what God said in the Scripture and allowing God's Spirit to then convict us and move us and change us and mold us into what He wants us to be. But James is giving you another test of true faith. That's what this whole epistle is all about. And he wants to know and wants you to know that the genuineness of a person's faith will inevitably be demonstrated in their speech. The genuineness of your faith will inevitably be demonstrated in your speech. Those who don't have a regenerate heart will not be able to control their tongue. But those who do and are born again, still don't we have to depend on the Spirit of God in order to control our speech and guard our speech. And those who are maturing in Christ are going to see their speech become more like Christ, become more gracious, more loving, more truthful, more confrontive, more honest, and more building than ever before. So if you're not there already, hopefully you're in James chapter 3, He's going to test the reality of your faith by talking to you about the power of the tongue, the incredible power of speech, the persuasiveness of your talking, the danger of your talking, the danger of teaching, the risk of conversations, and ultimately, are you ready? Here's what you got to walk away with. You and I have to guard our mouths. We must not say everything that we think. That, that's hugely bad hugely evil, it's going to get you into a lot of trouble. And when you get worked up is when you need to be less verbal, not more. Less. Now, understand, the tongue exposes your heart. And that should create a little bit of fear of judgment and motivate your maturing. 
And we're going to unpack verses 1 through 5 today, and then after Christmas, uh, verses 5 through 12. But let's read aloud with me, if you would, verses 1 through 5 from your outline so we can read it together. Let's read it right now. Ready? Here we go. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now if we put bits into horses' mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, yet it boasts of great things. The half-brother of our Lord right now has been testing our faith, and really, he's been telling this scattered and battered readers, he wants them to know now, you know, if you're a genuine Christian, you're going to manifest that. If you are genuinely born again, it's going to show. Faith without works is... There you go. So he says in chapter 1, seek to express joy in trial. Because you know who's in charge. And, and, and if you're genuinely born again, you're going to try to take responsibility for your sin and temptation. Though you occasionally might blame somebody else, when it all comes down and you get you know, a hold of yourself before the Lord, you're going to go, yeah, it was my fault. I, I, I did this. I, I, took, I take responsibility for it. He's going to bring you to a point where you're going to obey God to be a doer of the word. That was all chapter 1. Chapter 2, he's going to want you to love everyone without partiality, without any basis of external. He's going to make certain then your faith produces what? Works. That's the main theme of James. He basically says, if you say you believe like you should, then why do you behave like you shouldn't? And now in chapter 3, he's going to do the same thing, except he's going to say, if you believe like you should, then why do you say things you shouldn't? Why do you say things? Chapter 3 is the x-ray into your heart through your speech. That's what it is. So today, he wants you to grow in a little bit of godly fear. He wants you to picture yourself. You've all seen a dog with a muzzle, right? Everybody know what a muzzle is? Keeps the dog from biting you, right? It keeps the dog. So God wants a muzzle over your mouth. He wants a muzzle over my mouth. Big time. And he wants you to be careful what comes out. He wants you to filter what comes out. And by the way, you're going to learn today, he really wants a lot of things not to be said. A lot of stuff that goes through your head, he wants it not to be articulated. You mean, I'm dishonest? No, he just doesn't want you to birth certain things. And he's going to tell you why. He's going to tell you why. So, let's take a look at it. He's going to tell you it's, your speech is more powerful, more dangerous, more impactful, more persuasive, more destructive, more important than you realize. Every single one of you in this room has been marked by someone's speech. Somebody said something to you that you have never forgotten, and it actually changed the way you live. It has. And you have done the same. You have marked other people by what you've said. And that can be not just for negative, it can be for positive. It can be that you've encouraged someone, that you were life-giving in your words at the appropriate moment. The power of the tongue is going to be pressed upon us by James. So listen to what he has to say. Point number one in your outline, your talking has the proficiency to determine. Uh, That's my outline, sorry. 
Your talking has the proficiency. He says in verse 1 and 2, your speech is able to determine. It's able to determine your maturity and also the kind of judgment you'll face as a teacher. Look at verses 1 and 2. He says, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man able to bridle the whole body as well. Now this passage has a positive and negative motivation. Verse 1 is a negative motivation. Verse 2 is a positive motivation for you to think through your speech. He's addressing something that's going on there. But negatively, it almost feels like James is attacking teaching in the church. But in fact, what he's trying to do is protect teaching. He's trying to protect it. He starts with a very direct imperative. It is actually the only command. Verse 1 contains the only command in all 12 verses here. So he's giving a very, very specific direction here. And he's basically saying, do not run too quickly to the role of teaching. Do not run too quickly to the role of teaching. This might be mainly directed at young men, but it really affects all of us here. But don't run too quickly. There must have been some sort of rivalry in the assemblies that James is writing to over who would teach. Uh, James says, those who teach will be judged more strictly than those who listen. Did you get that? Those who teach will be judged more strictly than those who listen. Now, it's a very sad thing when an immature Christian tries to become a teacher before they're ready. They think they've attained some sort of great place of honor. But what they've actually done in becoming a teacher is that they have demanding from God a more severe judgment. Okay, that's what they're doing. The Greek word teacher there was used by the rabbis of somebody who was officially in the teaching position, somebody who was an official teacher of the church, a recognized teacher of the church. But that doesn't mean that this doesn't apply to those of you who teach in a CG or teach a children's class or you guys who go to the jail or you parents who instruct your children in the word. Okay, there's, there's an element that we need to accept the responsibility that that's a serious call. Would you agree? There's a stricter judgment at stake here. The caution, let not many of you become teachers, is really not to discourage you from communicating the truth. Uh, James, he doesn't want those who are called to teach not to teach. He's just saying, make certain of two things. What are the two things? Number one, you're saved. I want you to make sure you're saved. Make sure you're born again. The book of James is basically the indicators of true faith. He's already given us a warning about the tongue in chapter 1. He said in chapter 1, verse 26, If anyone thinks himself to be religious, yet he does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is what? We've got to guard our tongue. We've got to. So don't become a teacher unless you're saved. And notice, James is addressing, though, verse 1, to my brethren, he says in verse 1. So he's talking to believers here. And so secondly, it's basically he want to make sure that you're called to teach. Now, this is not for everybody. This is those who are set apart as teachers saying, make sure you're called. There's a lot of people that say, I want to be a teacher of the word. Well, make sure you're a teacher of the word that God intends that for you. So how do you know that? Well, you've got a passionate desire to do it. Even though you're under judgment or stricter judgment, you still have a passionate desire. You have the spiritual gift of teaching. Uh, that people either come to Christ or become like Christ. In other words, they change when you teach. Not that your teaching is eloquent. Not that it's always you know, filled without flaws or etc. flaws of communication or whatever. But that people's lives change. They become more like Jesus Christ. And that other leaders and gifted teachers will affirm that you're a teacher. Make sure you're called to teach. Don't just be flippant in this and calling yourself a teacher of God's word. And James' point is make, that he's making here is that no believer, 
should ever begin any form of official teaching of God's word within the context of the church without embracing how serious a responsibility it is. It's a serious responsibility. Are you getting this? This is not just for anybody. This is not for self-appointed people. God's got to appoint you as a teacher. To sin with the tongue alone, that's a bad thing. To sin with the tongue with two or three people, that's, that's a little bit worse. To sin with the tongue before a whole lot of people is even worse than that. But to sin with the tongue while you're teaching God's Word, really bad, really deadly. Would you agree? In other words, it's multiplied. And the Bible teacher is responsible to speak the truth and not their own opinion. The Bible teacher, what he says, affects many lives. So the responsibility to handle the word accurately cannot be taken, taken lightly. And teachers are also expected to live the truth. Not just teach it, but live it. I mean, not merely just explain it, but have it live out in their lives. they got to labor to be doers of the word. Or you can do what I did. Which is, I married someone who expects me to live everything that I teach. Alright? All the time. That's supposed to be funny, but it's not, I guess, to you. <clears throat> You know, there's a reason why myself and anybody who actually fills this pulpit spends about 20 to 24 hours every week on a sermon. See, why would you do that? And Gene looks at me and, you know, we go to the bookstore and we see this book of sermons for the whole year. You know, have you ever seen one of those? I've seen it. And she looked at me and goes, you're a dinosaur. What are you doing studying all this time? You know, but we do that because we want to make sure that what you hear is God's word and not what we want it to say. Does that make sense? That we are explaining his word. There's a reason why every day this message I read through every day this week in order to be prepared for this moment. To pray, to reevaluate, to make sure that it's accurate, to make sure that we're not messing it up. And I'm not the only one. We have a deep bench here at FBC and these men work hard at bringing you the word. I know the CG leaders do. Uh, sometimes I look at my wife teaching the K-1, and I'm thinking, what are you doing? Spending like hours on this? They're kindergartners. And she's like, it's God's word, honey. I'm like, oh, okay, shut up, Chris. <laughs> I get it. Understand, this is a serious issue. Why is it serious? There's a stricter judgment. That's why it's so serious. That God takes it seriously. And he says, knowing that as such, we will incur a stricter judgment. Teachers and preachers use their tongues a lot. And therefore, with the added responsibility of correctly communicating God's word, they experience a more intense judgment. Now, there's one word in verse 1 that should cause every teacher to panic. Can you look at it? Can you find which word it is? Do you have any guesses? What word? Which word? Which, what's the word? One word. Anybody? Stricter? Judgment? Is that what you think? You know the most serious word in that verse? It's the pronoun we. You say, why are you saying that, Chris? James includes himself under the stricter judgment. This is the half-brother of Jesus saying, I'm under stricter judgment. This is an apostle of Jesus Christ. I'm under stricter judgment. This is the, really, the apostolic head of the Jerusalem church saying, I'm under stricter judgment. This is, a, are you ready? An author of the scripture 
He wrote the book of James. It's in your Bible. And he says, I'm under stricter. If he's under stricter judgment, where does that leave you and where does that leave me? This is pretty intense. Would you agree? That's a scary word, that we. Interesting enough, every teacher without exception, is to live out 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Be diligent to present yourself approved of God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. If you teach the word, then do the work of an accurate teacher. And what you're hearing here, watch, he's prepping you, speaking to teachers. He's going to move into every Christian and every tongue, and he's saying, it's a serious business what you say. It's a serious business. So he starts with the teacher saying, basically knowing that as we will incur a stricter judgment. The word judgment there is neutral. It can be positive or negative. The verb will incur actually literally means you will yourself in the future receive this. This is going to happen. This judgment is going to happen. And stricter is the Greek word mega, greater. It's greater judgment. Now what does this mean? For unbelieving teachers, it means they're going to face Christ at the great white throne And they're going to suffer the consequences if they are a false teacher. Incredible torment. I believe, honestly, that the worst place in hell is for the false teacher who misleads people in salvation. The person who leads others to hell. I really believe that with all my heart. For the believing teacher, their judgment will be chastisement in this life and also eternal reward when they face Christ at the Bema, because all their sins are dealt with. So then Romans chapter 14, verse 12, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. And 1 Corinthians 3, take a look at it. Fire will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. Everyone's teaching is tested. Negatively, then, the tongue results in mega judgment for the teacher. Now, positively, the tongue, when controlled, indicates massive maturity. All right? So, what do you say? This is now point, no, actually, point number one still, but verse two. What do you say to a brand new baby Christian who wants to preach her next Sunday? They come up after service and they go, hey, I should be opening up the Word. What should I do? Well, instead of running too quickly to the function of a teacher too quickly, what they should do, James says in verse 2, is maybe it would be best first if you mature a little in Christ. And that's what he says in verse 2. We all stumble in many ways. Look at it. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, and that's an everyday conversation now, He is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Notice the first phrase. It applies to everyone, but especially to the Bible teacher. Nobody's infallible. Verse 2, we all stumble in many ways. Can I hear an amen to that? You ought to circle that. That's an encouragement to you. This is James the Apostle, all right, saying this. Everybody messes up with their speech, their words, their conversations, and their tongue in general. But when a Bible teacher stumbles, they can cause a whole crowd of people to stumble. And that's where it's deadly. That's where it's deadly. The Greek word there, to stumble, refers to, and you could put it there in your text, sinning. It means missing a step. It means falling. It actually means, you could put down next to stumble, to slip. To slip. Uh, That's an appropriate description for the danger of the tongue. You say, why is that? 
Well, didn't God put your tongue in a wet place making it slippery? It's, a little, it's kind of a low humor. Okay, so sorry. But understand, the most encouraging word in verse 2 is also the same discouraging word in verse 1. The word we. James says, are you ready? This is the great apostle. This is the author of Scripture. This is, this is the, the one who oversees the church. He says, we all stumble. Come on, doesn't that encourage you? Come on, you're saved. You know you're going to be perfect in heaven, but right now, you ain't perfect. And we're going to stumble. We're going to work our way, fleeing sin, pursuing Christ, but it's going to be a process. Everybody with me in process? James, here he is, this great man of God. So, so pious was James that they called him camel knees. Remember that? Because he prayed so much, his knees were like camel knees. And here he is saying, we all, what? Stumble in many ways. That's just encouragement to me. It is. And understand, if you have the responsibility of teaching, but you have an untamed tongue, James says, you will become the object of severe judgment. But every Christian, including teachers of the word, need to embrace the next truth, verse 2, and that's everyone. If anyone, he says, now that's everybody, not just teachers, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a what? Perfect man. Now, perfect has two meanings. One is absolute perfection. You never make a mistake. And really, is anybody in this room absolutely perfect? Can I see your hand? It's always a five-year-old that raises her hand. All right. No, there's no one here. We're not in that category. And it really doesn't make any sense. And of course, there's no one here. There's only one perfect man, and his name was Jesus Christ. And therefore, because he's the only perfect man, we will all stumble a lot or a little in what we say. The second meaning for perfect then, and you want to write this down, is complete or mature. Complete or mature. And the idea is that every area of your life, including your speech, is seeking to be under the direction of God's Word. Paul called it this, I want you and going to teach you and I'm going to do everything I can until you are complete in Christ. That's what we're trying to do as a church. We, we don't want just people tied into our church family. We want you complete in Christ. We want you to be in every way, like it says in the Great Commission, teaching them to obey what? All that I've commanded you. We want you to bring every area of your life under the authority of the Word of God. And one of the most important areas you can work on is your what? Your tongue, your speech, what you say. Understand, James is saying, if you don't stumble much in what you say, whether you, whether you teach or whatever you talk about, then you are a mature believing man or woman. That's the mature one. Through the filling of the Spirit, dependently relying on following God's Word, in His power alone, you can begin to display more God-honoring talk and more God-honoring teaching. The, the idea is a spiritually mature, spirit-filled believer can control their tongue increasingly. The more mature you are, the more it is that you'll be controlling your speech. That's just true. There's a tie-in here. And then James makes this shocking statement at the end of verse 2. Look what he says. If you begin to make progress in controlling your tongue, then you'll be able to bridle the what? The whole body as well. And, and verse 2, the Greek body here refers to all of you in general, you in general, the whole being of you. And James is promising if you can control the tongue, which is already ready to sin at any moment. Uh, the tongue is like a vicious thing. It just comes out of you. And, and in a second... You can have this great conversation and then one little sentence and blam, right? It's ready to go. 
tough to control. But if you can begin to control your tongue, that's just this savage beast that lives within you, right there in your mouth, then controlling everything else is going to follow. Controlling everything else is going to follow. If the Holy Spirit begins to gain control of the most volatile part of your being, then His control over the rest of your life will be more dominant. Are you getting it? If He gets a hold of this thing right here, it's going to control, start to control everything else. That's what He's saying. When a person's speech is Christ-exalting, God-honoring, and edifying, then the rest of their life will be spiritually more healthy. Controlling your speech assures you of salvation, it increases your spirit-filled usefulness, and it increases your, your, your healthiness as a believer. So why should you want to? Why should I want this morning to, to put the effort to control my tongue? Why should I want to pursue Psalm 139 verse 1? I guard my ways that I might not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth as with a, what? Muzzle. Psalm 141 verse 3, set a guard, O Lord, over my, what? My mouth, keep watch over the door of my lips. And he's saying, because your tongue, your talk, your conversation are so powerful, yes, the tongue is very small, but it has a huge impact both for good and for bad. Number two in your outline, your talking has the power to direct. Your talking has the power to direct. Verses three through five, bits and rudders there, he says this. Now, if we put bits into horses' mouths so that they will obey us, we direct what? Their entire what? Their entire body as well. That's what he just said. Now he's expanding on that. Look at the ships also. They are also so great and are driven by strong winds and are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body and yet it boasts of great things. Don't forget what the little tongue can do. Little tongue can start a marriage, right? Stand on the knee and you say, will you? And they say yes and bada-bing, words started. They can end friendships. The tongue can destroy churches, exasperate children, disqualify leaders. The words that come out of your mouth can end bitterness and wounds and hurts. They can anger parents. They can get spouses screaming at each other. They can heal emotional wounds. The tongue can express love, cure depression, discouragement, ailments. The tongue can sing praises and give thanks to the God of the universe. Just to begin a few. Just the little tongue can do incredible things, can it not? So he uses two analogies, James does, to show us the power and control of the tongue. Look at the first one, verse 3. If we put the bits into the horse's mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Now, how many of you have done a lot of horseback riding? Say your hands. Come on, come on. Put them up. Like three of you? Come on. Okay, how many of you had a horse? You owned a horse? Well, there's a few hands that go up. All right, thank you for that. Interesting. I... I used to lead trail rides and ride the Pony Express every day, full gallop, deliver the mail. I really did at a Christian camp. You think I'm, I'm joking, I'm not. We were hauling, me and Wampum were hauling. And I'd throw the mail. The first ride is, is worthy of a, a story, but we won't get there today. 
You know a horse's bit lies on top of its tongue? And when it's attached to the bridle and the reins, it's possible for that rider to, to actually use that bit to easily make a gigantic horse do what it wants. I, maybe you're intimidated by the size of horses, but that bit changes everything. Changes everything. You know, interesting enough, controlling a horse's mouth controls its head, and that controls the entire body of the horse. Now, there are feisty horses, and that control is a little bit, you know, uh, takes a lot of work, and there are passive horses that just go right along with it. But understand, even the most gentle horses and feisty horses, Apache and Wampum, who have been ridden for many years, are, are not totally controllable without that bit in their mouth. They still have their own will until that bit. And as long as they're expected to perform a service, whether it's pulling a wagon or carrying a rider or carrying a load or plowing a field, a horses require that bit for that kind of control. And that's the point here. James says, it's the same with the believer. To be useful to God, we need our tongue's control, that bit. So everything else can follow in submission. We need our tongue's control so everything else can follow in submission. That small bit controls giant horses and a little talk can make a giant impact and that small bit controls that giant horse and controlling your tongue will direct your entire life. That's how important it is. There are issues in your life that need control and it starts with the tongue. Secondly, James gives another analogy uh, using huge sailing ships of his day. Uh, some of them were massive. They actually had giant grain barges that were actually moved throughout the Mediterranean. Paul's ship that sank, remember, his shipwreck carried 276 people. So it wasn't a small boat. It was a large ship. So he says in verse 4, he says, Look at the ships also, though they're so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder. The largest ships back then were small compared to the cruise ships and the mighty warships that we have today. But James wants you to think proportion. He says, what's the rudder compared to the whole ship? That's what he's trying to tell you. Compare the rudder to the ship, to the size of the ship. Compare it to its overall size. A ship's rudder is very small, yet it easily steers that gigantic vessel. Look what he says in verse 4. Look at it. Wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. Just like that little rudder controls that massive ship, so a little talk can accomplish great things for God's glory or horrific evil that can destroy people. Even people that you love. It can even damn souls. The tongue is very small, but it's very powerful. It's a small thing, but it can do great bad or great build. Bad or build. And James continues, he says, So also the tongue, verse 5, is a small part of the body, yet it boasts of great things, like a little bit in a horse's mouth or a rudder of a ship. Basically, he's saying the tongue has the power to control the rest of us. The rest of us. It's, it's the master control for the whole body, directing virtually every aspect of our behavior. Take a look at this, if you would, please, this incredible quote. I put it in your notes because I wanted you to really remember it. J.A. Moitier writes this words, and it's very, very, very helpful. He says this, If our tongue were so well under control 
that it refused to formulate. That's his way of saying it refused to speak these words. It refused to speak or formulate the words of self-pity. The images of lustfulness. Are you ready? Refused to speak the thoughts of anger and resentment. Don't speak them at all. Then these things, what he says, are cut down before they have a choice to live. A chance to live. When you don't speak them, they're cut down before they have a chance to actually blossom. And basically, he's saying the master switch has been deprived them of any power to switch on that side of our lives. The control of the tongue is more than an evidence of spiritual maturity. It is a means to spiritual maturity. In other words, the point is, don't say it. Now, I knew a couple, I'm not recommending this. I'm not recommending this. But I knew a couple that when she wanted to argue, he would walk away. He, he would walk, he would just not, he says, if there's no argument, there's no sin. Now, again, sometimes couples need to work it out at some point, carefully, graciously. But what he was trying to do was actually live out this truth. Do not give birth. There are times where let's call it halts for right now, cool down, and then come back and talk together. Let's go have a cup of coffee and then talk about it. Or if you're you know, a little more youthful, let's go get a Slurpee and then talk about it. But James gives no specifics when he says the tongue boasts of great things. When he says that, take a look at that. It says the tongue boasts of great things. In other words, what he's saying is that basically he has in mind for all of us, the natural inclination of our lives is to brag, to be proud, to be self-centered, to live in such a way where we say anything we think. Very bad. We, we just assert our opinion when we shouldn't. We, we start snapping back and we stand on preference or we think, oh, it's best for me over what God wants. It's pride. It's boasting. And whenever the tongue boasts, it leaves a wake of destruction. It tears down others. It destroys churches. It harms families. It weakens marriages. It ends friendships. In order for the tongue to control our lives in the right way, we must resist the ever-present inclination and temptation to boast, to brag, or to say certain words. We need to stop it and just wait. Cool down. We should speak only gracious, kind words, words that build rather than tear down, words that edify and comfort and bless and encourage. They should be words of of humility and gratitude. Wisdom. Such words, of course, can only come from a heart that is not only born again, but is also moment by moment dependent upon the Spirit of God because you can't do this in your own strength and, of course, wanting to live according to the Word of God in everything you say and do. Controlling your speech will assure you that you're actually a Christian, James is saying here, but it also increases your spirit-filled usefulness and keeps you from doing harm, but also causes you to do good, to build, to love. Next time, James will say your speech can be a delight or it can destroy. Next time, your tongue will build up or it will break apart. Next time, your dialogue can sweeten or sour any relationship. So take this home. Letter A. Start depending on the Holy Spirit to work on your talking. Apart from Christ, you can do nothing. When you seek 
to be Ephesians 5.18, filled with the Spirit, then God can work through you in order to control your speech. To be filled with the Spirit is to depend on Him in every moment, keeping your hand in His hand, seeking His control through you while you engage your will to step on an obedience to the Word of God. So you're depending on Him, but you're walking according to truth. And to be filled with the Spirit usually is out of a response for your overwhelmedness with gratitude for what Christ has done for you, a desire to please Him, obey Him. Now, based on that, do these three things. Now, listen, if you're not saved and you're not filled with the Spirit, you can't do these three things. But if you are filled with the Spirit, you can do these three things. These are three steps, okay? Are you ready? One, speak less. Speak less. You have two ears and one mouth for a reason, right? Are you ready to hear what Jesus said when he was falsely accused? What did Jesus say when he was falsely accused? Are you ready? Here it comes. That's what he said. Nothing. Nothing. We need to become Christians of fewer words. When we want to speak, don't. When we think we should speak, wait. Now you think, Chris, oh, you're really nailing us today. No, I'm nailing me. I'm in this with you 100%. And understand, Proverbs 10, 19, when there are many words, transgression is what? Circle that word. What is it again? Unavoidable. But he who restrains his lips is wise. Number one, speak less. Number two, screen what you say. Screen what you say. Ephesians 4.29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it may give grace to those who hear. Listen, God says here, your words must build, not barf. They got to help, not harm. They got to be well-timed, and they got to point others to the God of all grace. The God of all grace. Number three, speak less, screen what you say, and then now there are selecting key words to say often. Speak, screen, select, all right? You say, what words? Thank you. I love you. I appreciate you. Please forgive me. Is there anything I can do for you? How may I help you? I am so thankful for you. There are words we should say a lot. They cannot be oversaid to parents or children. They can't be oversaid to spouses. Look at how the, even the New Testament letters close and the gracious words that Paul uses towards individual believers and how he appreciates them and is thankful for them and loves them. Understand, select key words to say. Letter B, take extra care when you teach God's word. The very first verse, and this is a confession, the very first verse I memorized as a Christian, I read it once and never forgot it. Do you know what verse it was? James 3, 1. Let not many of you become teachers because you shall incur a stricter judgment. And I was stupid enough as an 18-year-old to say, bring it on, God. Bring it on. I'm ready. It stuck with me. I never had to work at it. I never forgot it. And now I know him better. And as I know him better, I'm more afraid than ever to make sure that what you hear is what God meant by what God said. And every elder in our church feels deeply that you make sure you hear what God meant by what God said. Because I'm going to have to answer for my teaching.
in a much more stricter manner. And so are you. As you teach your children, as you teach that class, as you guide that community group, youth, as you disciple those teens, you will give answer for what you say concerning the Word of God. Make sure that you depend on the Holy Spirit, that you seek to say, I, I, don't, I want to make sure it's not what I think it says, I know what God intended to say. And that all glory goes to the triune God. All glory goes to Him. You fear His scrutiny over your words. Let her see. What does your speech reveal about your heart? You know, you can't talk like Christ unless you're in Christ. You can't control your tongue until the Lord has control over you. You cannot stop letting evil out of your mouth until God has killed that evil old man in you. And given you a brand new inner person. Christ came to die so that you would be freed from not just the penalty of sin, but the power of sin. And therefore, even the power to increasingly control that tongue. You're never going to do it perfectly. It's still going to surprise you. I think just this last week, I, something popped out of my mouth and I went, oh, ah! just happens what does your speech reveal about your heart because it's a window it shows you who you are what you're truly like and if all you hear is gossip corruption complaints criticisms fear hurt hate judgment then you don't have a new heart cry out to christ to transform you to forgive you and to make you new to make you new, so that your speech might be gracious, kind, and loving, and have a heart that's been, because you have a heart that's been reborn. Understand, let's remember the cost that Christ paid to give you victory over your speech. Remember what he did. Let's talk more like Christ by talking more of Christ. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we pray that this morning you would glorify yourself by how we respond to you, that we would respond in worship by offering ourselves to you, and Father, that we would offer our tongues, our speech, that's really our heart and who we are. Father, we know that uh, we'll never be totally free until we're in your presence. We long for that day, we look forward to that day, but until then, we pray that your spirit would make progress in our lives, and maybe there's one or two, or three, who are here this morning who are finding themselves never able to control their tongue. They're never able to overcome these propensities to sin with their mouths. And Father, maybe it's your way, as you designed it in the book of James, to expose that they're not a true born-again believer, that their faith is not a saving faith, and that you would draw them to yourself. We pray that you're glorified by everything that happens, we pray, Father, that you would be pleased with how we respond. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast, and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. 
And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.